0: I love it. She sounds like an amazing friend.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's awesome.
0: So what translation are you guys memorizing? ESV. ESV. Nice. That's yes, a good one that's for memorization.
1: Uh, that's the book I normally typically read. I also have book Bible in, I think it's NIV or NLT. NLT.
0: Yeah, so let's so, talk translations a little bit. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you said you usually use ESV. Now, the ESV is mm-hmm. relatively modern. I can't remember when it kind of came on the scene. Maybe the 90s? Actually, I should check out the wiki on ESV. I feel like it's pretty contemporary. 2001.
1: Oh, shit. Yeah, it's
0: it's a very neat Bible translation.
1: 20-year anniversary. What'd you say? I said 20-year anniversary.
0: Oh, you're right. Okay. And why do you enjoy the ESV?
1: Um... I grew up reading the ESV. Like, my that's what my church uses. Okay. So I think it was just, like, natural for me. I don't particularly enjoy it more than any other translation. Um, Yeah.
0: So the ESV is, like, really solid. I would say some some things that are, like, going in favor of that translation, and I use it sometimes for my own study, is it's relatively word for word, meaning, like, each word in the English or series of words is connected to a greek word or a series of words and so it's rather than kind of like oh what's this general section about and let me tell you what it's about so a, a fairly loose translation it's pretty rigid word for word and one of the wins of that is it retains a kind of precision where you can kind of, you can lean into every word and you're not thinking this, this is just somebody's summary of what the Bible means. Like this is a pretty accurate translation of the original Greek, Hebrew, or uh, some parts of the Bible are Aramaic, but very little. It's like mm-hmm. part, part of Daniel maybe, and some words in the New Testament. Um, and so there's like confidence to lean in and do rigorous Bible study. Also the ESV, although it's word for word, is also fairly elegant. Um and for example, the translation I primarily use is CSB, Christian Standard Bible. And it's a little bit less rigid than the English Standard Version, ESV. Uh, but it's also less beautiful. So if I'm reading like the Psalms, it's not uncommon for me to pull up the ESV or the NKJV, New King James Version, or even occasionally King James. Like there's something kind of beautiful and poetic about the, you know, the the old school almost like a an Elizabethan English vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a, it's like when we say blessed are the poor. Like, mm, nobody says yes. blessed anymore unless you're, True. like, it's doing your the old English pronunciation. <laughs>
1: yeah. What makes it less rigid than the ESV?
0: Okay, so so it does, like, thought for thought. So, uh, cleanness of mm. teeth. Let me pull up a an example.
1: So, I'm not using- necessarily a sentence by sentence, but it's just, like, I think you did explain that to me
0: before. Yeah, so okay. if you have a Bible handy, turn to Amos I
1: do. Amos chapter
0: 4. And uh, Amos chapter 4, it's talking about just a, a lot of the prophets are warning the people of God and pronouncing judgment against them for their sin and just God giving them over to the consequences of sin of their sin. And if you look at Amos chapter 4 and do you have the ESV in front of you? Mm-hmm. So, read 4 6 in the ESV.
1: <clears throat> I gave you clean, cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord.
0: Now, for an astute reader, you can probably figure out what cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places means. What does that mean?
1: Like. Like. Bear, like. Not also opp- what would be the opposite of health? Just like sickness?
0: Or sickness like- or specifically famine. Mm. So there's not going to be bread. Mm. There's not going to be food in your mouth to make your teeth dirty. And so it's this idiom that apparently they used back in the day. No one says that anymore. But cleanness mm-hmm. of teeth means you haven't had a meal in a while. Uh, you, you know, maybe... Now, if you use some mouthwash, it'll say, like, don't eat or drink for 30 minutes afterwards because it wants, like, the fluoride to, like, set into your teeth. Mm -hmm. Well, back then, the only time your mouth was really clean is if you hadn't eaten in a few days. And and so cleanness of teeth was an idiom for famine. So in the CSB, (laughs) instead of saying cleanness of teeth, here's how the CSB renders Amos 4.6. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities. So instead of saying cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread, it says nothing to eat and a shortage of food. <clears throat> so it's, it's conveying the same idea, but you don't have to be like, wait, what does cleanness of teeth mean? It, it's just really straightforward. Uh, here, here's another one. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 chapter 10 um what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna read this for you in the new king james version and then i'll have you read into the esv because the esv actually translates okay. as the same way as the csb and it's a slightly easier way to understand oh, interesting. so romans 10 9 and new king james which is what i've memorized and grew up reading when i was a little kid which was before the esv existed because i'm that old <laughs> <laughs> uh, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, it's a pretty straightforward verse to anyone who's familiar with basic Christian teaching. But think about the grammar there. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Like, what does that mean? To confess with Mm -hmm. your mouth the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. What it means is to, like, declare and agree with the statement Jesus is Lord. But this very literal, older way of rendering it is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now, the ESV has a relatively easier to understand rendering. How does the ESV translate Romans
1: 10.9? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.
0: Right. So it says confess with Mm -hmm. your mouth Jesus is Lord. It just renders a little more straightforward. And the CSB does that very very often. It, it's, a fair, it's, called a, it's a dynamic translation, and it, it moves back and forth between a fairly rigid word for word in some er, sections, and then uh, idea for idea in other sections. And it depends. It's just trying, it's trying to be very rigorous and faithful, but also fairly straightforward and easy to understand for a modern reader. Um, it's, not like, it's not a paraphrase like the Message or the Living Bible or something like that But it's it's a bit looser. It's it's kind of like it like wanders back and forth between like an NIV and an ESV, but it's a fairly recent version. The CSB is only like 10 years old. It's newer than both of those. Okay. Um, Here's a verse that I like to go to when I'm checking out a new Bible translation. Turn to John chapter 3. So John three contains a, a very classic. Uh, series of, of statements by Jesus. He's having a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He, this is where he starts talking about being born again. And Nicodemus is like, how do I climb back inside my mother? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and Jesus references uh, Moses. And there was a a consequence of the children of Israel's sin. As a consequence, God, like, brought poisonous snakes and people were getting bitten by snakes and and dying. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, raise up a, a, like fashion, a a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole. And when anyone gets bitten, tell them to look to the serpent on the pole and they'll be healed. And it's a type of Jesus. It's, it's my solution for salvation is not in me. I need to look up to the one that God's brought to deliver me. And so Jesus actually references that here. So if you look in John 3, where does he say this? Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I'm reading ESV right now. You want to read the next verse, John 3.16 in the ESV?
1: <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life.
0: Amen. So a pretty well known verse, possibly the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, what I want to focus on is the word so. For God so loved the world. What does so mean here? Well, uh, let's flip open this passage in the message for a moment. The message translation can be really helpful and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. The message translation is very much idea for idea. It's it's a fellow named Eugene Peterson, uh, just a a big heart, loves Jesus, loves the people of God, wanted to make something that was really easy to grab a hold of and moving. And I would not recommend the message for rigorous Bible study because it doesn't have that fairly precise word-for-word type translation, but it can be amazing to uh, get kind of Eugene Peterson. It's almost like reading the Bible with a friend and their friend is like, oh, this is what was just said. It's Eugene Peterson just telling you what that passage just meant. So he's kind of going through and sometimes the message will actually even combine a couple of verses together. And you see that here. Actually, 16, 17, and 18, he kind yeah, of meshed them all them. together as like, uh, rather than translating each one of these verses precisely, here's the gist of 16, 17, 18. And it's beautiful. Uh, again, I wouldn't recommend it for like scholarship or like rigorous Bible study. But in terms of like, what's being said here, he makes it really clear. And you even, there's like a, this is how much God loved the world, colon. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, colon, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. It's just like, he, he puts it very in a very clear. modern f- phrasing. And it's, mm-hmm. it's super clear. It's not maybe, maybe not elegant, mm-hmm. but it's easy. Um, Okay, so back to the ESV though. So it says, for God so loved the world. And that so is, th- the message said, this is how much God loved the world. And th- that, w- that is actually not understanding the so well. Sometimes, sometimes we read that and it's like, God so much loved the world. <laughs> that it, It's just mm-hmm. like, the, the, the so is just 20 O's. And that's what, what the point <laughs> is. But this is actually not a so of degree. This is a so of manner. And here's what I mean. Um, we don't use the so of manner very often in English today. But what if I were showing you how to vacuum a carpet? Maybe I would say I'd grab a vacuum, do a couple, uh, you know, motions forward and back, and then say, like so. Mm. When you say like so, mm-hmm. you don't mean like so much vacuum. You mean like <laughs> in this way. It's it's a so of manner, not a so of degree. And that's actually what this is here in verse 16. For God so loved the world is actually for God in this way loved the world. That's a better Mm. rendering. And what he's saying is just like he provided a way of salvation with Moses in the wilderness and he held up that bronze serpent on the snake and people looked to it and they were rescued from their affliction, just in this way, in this manner, God loved the world by giving his son. So whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so sometimes when I look at a new Bible translation, by the way, I'm fine with so. So is actually perfectly accurate. The problem is most people think it means so of degree rather than so of manner. Um, but one, I would say one of the primary reasons I got turned on to the Christian Standard Bible was when I read it. I was like, that's it. So if you listen to this, this is how the Christian Standard Bible translates John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way colon He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so there's that kind of clarity mm. of the message where it sets something up with a colon and like it's got that kind of clarity but it also has a fairly word for word precision and in fact it's it is just as precise but easier to understand than the ESV in this in this verse and so it really uh, kind of like, I, I got turned on to it here. Another passage I like to look at when I'm comparing Bible translations, turn over to 1 Corinthians 7 in your ESV. So in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to look at two different words.
1: Okay.
0: The first one is the word slave or bond servant. So look in verse 21. How does the ESV render verse 21?
1: Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail, avail yourself of the opportunity.
0: Okay. And I think this is a, a, it's an excellent translation. By the way, most Bible translations are amazing. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's, it's the way some people are like, oh, that's a terrible translation is just, it's fairly silly, and it probably says more about the person who thinks it's a terrible translation than the actual translation. Because most of these translations are amazing. There, there are. It is important to understand the difference, and like the message is a fine translation, but it's it's important to know this is paraphrased idea for idea, not trying to be a very precise translation. Um, and there is a translation I have concerns about called the Passion translations so or TPT. Of that. And that actually, mm-hmm. that that translation concerns me mildly, so just a FYI, <laughs> if, if you encounter the Passion you? Translation, eh, just <laughs> look it up in something else. Um, but most of these are amazing translations, so I'm not going to say, like, one's bad. But in this case, I actually prefer bondservant works, but what we're really talking about are, are Roman slaves, like, it's it slaves in the Roman context, and... Um, I realize that some people are hesitant to use the word slave in this context, because when Americans read the word slave, they think of American slavery. And Roman slavery was uh, not God's ideal, but it was definitely not the same as American slavery, which was race-based and often pretty ugly. Uh, and, And so slavery in the Roman Empire was often pretty ugly, too, but... I would say not as categorically ugly and not as categorically race-based. And so to like avoid being distracted, the word slave can be almost distracting in the modern American context. Yeah. I, I suspect for that reason they used bondservant. I like using the word slave because what Paul's trying to convey here is regardless of your situation, like the whole everybody on planet Earth could be opposed to you. And in Jesus, you are free to love and forgive and walk in joy joy and walk in thanksgiving. Like, whatever state you're in, like, hey, if you had the opportunity to not be a slave, where does he say this? Um, oh, look at the end of verse 21. Yeah. Were you bondservant mm-hmm. when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He's like, hey, obviously being a slave is not great. But like, even if you're a slave, you are free in Jesus. And, and I love using that intense word slave because it really, it's the point Paul's making. Um, and so ESV uses bond servant, but CSB actually uses the word slave, and I prefer the CSB's rendering there. But later in the chapter, my preference goes the opposite way, and I preached First Corinthians seven a couple of years ago, and I used mm-hmm. the ESV when preaching the latter half of First Corinthians seven because.
1: So, do you switch halfway through? What'd you say? Did you switch halfway through,
0: or you just... Yeah, I just switched. How, and, and I told everybody, I was like, hey, I'm going to use the ESV yeah. for like verses 25 and on. Because mm-hmm. verse 25 in the ESV, how does verse 25 begin?
1: Now concerning the betrothed.
0: Yeah. Now betrothed is, is challenging because we don't really have betrothal in our modern context. And so I do understand why a Bible translator might want to avoid the word betrothed. The CSB renders it like this. Um, The CSB renders verse 25. He just says now about virgins or unmarried persons. Um, So he says virgins in verse 25. And then later on, they actually switch in verse 36. They switch the word engaged. So if any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin, he is engaged to. So it says engaged. And then in verse 38, it says fiance so then he who marries his fiancé does well. Whereas in the CSB, it uses betrothed and betrothed in all those cases. And I understand the rationale behind the CSB. They're like, nobody reading this is going to know what betrothal is. (laughs) We're just going to say engaged and fiancé. The problem Mm -hmm. is, in my opinion, and again, these are both great translations. I'm not trying to pretend one's good and one's bad. But to me, in my context, I feel like, although slave might require a little bit of explaining, At some level, the point is you can be in the most awful situation ever and you're free in Jesus to like, Mm -hmm. just follow Jesus in that state. Even if you can't escape like you're a slave, be free in Jesus. Uh, So I don't even mind if somebody maybe thinks of the American slavery context. Paul's saying even people in American slavery antebellum, like pre-civil war, they could still be free in Jesus. And I think that that is the point of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7, whereas he is not at all talking about people in the kind of situation that we think of when we think of like engagement and typically. And, and so I, I don't know. That's like, so I'm getting really nitpicky right now, but I'm trying to give mm-hmm. you a little bit of a taste. Like when I'm looking at various Bible translations and even considering what to preach out of, I'm looking at things like this and you're probably yeah. thinking, oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> no, it's <that's> awesome. <laughs> but uh, so that's
0: some of it. Now we mentioned the message briefly earlier. Have you ever, like, yes. read the message for daily devotions or maybe, like, a Bible study? No. yeah,
1: Never, no. Are
0: mm-hmm. you familiar with the message?
1: I'm a little bit familiar, yeah. I okay. think I always kind of heard of it in a negative connotation, so... Yeah, so, yeah so, I've always been, like, hesitant to read it until actually I talked to you about it, and then I was like, oh, okay, well, it's yeah. not so bad. <laughs>
0: so, so definitely, again, I wouldn't recommend it for serious Bible study. Not frequently, but sometimes I read passages I'm about to preach. I'll read them in the message just to be like, hey, what's Eugene Peterson's take? And, and there's a passage that I, I remember preaching a while ago now, like over 10 years ago. This was before I was like pastoring. And I, I preached this passage out of Luke 16, which is the parable of the unjust steward. And basically you have this dude who is not he's, he's totally a fraud. And as his master finds out and is kind of like, Hey, I'm going to fire you. And, and right before he gets fired, the fraud goes out and he begins on behalf of his master as the steward, forgiving people's or not forgiving, but like greatly reducing their debt. So somebody owes like the hundred grand and he's like, Oh, Hey, just give me 50 grand and we'll call it even. And so what he was doing was he was currying favor In those last remaining hours while he had a job, he was currying favor with all sorts of influential and powerful people because he was too lazy to work hard once he got fired and he was too proud to beg. So he's like, what can I do in this moment while I'm still manager of this powerful estate? How can I use this moment to impact the long-term? And Mm. so it's, it's Jesus teaching us as believers, our moment is our lifetime. It might be today, it might be another 70 years, but compared to eternity, it's like a moment. And Jesus is saying, how are you going to use this moment to impact eternity? And and Jesus, it's kind of confusing because you have this fraudulent servant who totally is cheating his master and he's lazy and he's proud. And then he says this in verse eight, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, when you die, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. So he's basically saying, hey, you got a dollar bill in your hand? Use it to impact eternity. You got a frying pan in your kitchen? Use it to impact eternity. And it's awesome. I love this parable, actually. I find it brilliant, but it is confusing at first. And the message translation uses a phrase that I found really helpful when I was looking into it. Let's see. Okay, so the message translation this is how Jesus, like the the master, praises the, the servant. Now, here's a surprise the master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way. But for what is right, using every adversity. So he's like saying like hey walk in righteousness, but be clever. Be street smart. <laughs> and I remember when I was preaching this, I I used New King James I think as my my primary text, but I used that phrase like streetwise smarts. Like so be street smart is Jesus's point. And I I found that really helpful. So I think the the message can be a useful translation at times. Um Totally, yeah. So you use the ESV mostly? Occasionally, the NIV. Why do you mm-hmm. use the NIV sometimes?
1: I actually was given a um, Bible. us called it? Have you heard of the filament Bibles? Filament. Fil- filament, like light bulb. It's, yeah, they're super cool. Um, on each page, there's like a little, like, I don't know, symbol cross thingy. And if you get the app on your phone, you can scan it, and it brings up like commentary and videos more information, different translation of well, the cool. same, whatever's on that page. So I don't use it a lot, but when I do, it's in that translation. So
0: Awesome. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So we kind of covered some translations a bit. You, you'd asked me a, a couple of times about translations. One of the things that came up in conversation once that I thought would be fun to revisit is talking about like worship choruses and selecting Mm. worship choruses for corporate worship context, what might be uh, helpful, unhelpful. Specifically, you maybe brought up the idea of songs from Bethel, which is a church out in California, Mm -hmm. Jesus Culture, that crew. What were your thoughts on that? And kind of, yeah, what what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, so um, I don't know. I always think about, churches, um, when they play worship music to their congregation or, you know, corporate worship, um, are those songs like, you know, biblically sound? And if so, like, I don't know. I think I believe as long as they're good scripturally, like you can sing it together. Um, but I have had a conversation with a lot of people, um, that if you use a song from a church, let's just use Bethel, for example, um, who's, you know, some of their beliefs may or may not be completely like true, um, based on scripture. Like if you play that song in church, is it the church's responsibility to like make sure no one else goes to Bethel and like listens to their sermons and like starts believing what, you know, like, are they like saying, so everything that Bethel teaches is okay. Just because we play this one song. And I don't think that's true, but I know some people who do think that. Um, So, I don't know. I think it's that can get very, very tricky. It's like if a pastor recommends a book, he's not recommending every book that author has ever written. He's just recommending that one book, you know?
0: Mm. Totally. Hmm. So, this actually brings up, let's talk about the concept of like a song from Bethel or maybe even another space. Like, I don't know, a song out of... Uh, what's, what's the name of Lakewood, Joel Osteen's church, or, or who knows where, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that concept first, and then maybe more specifically dive into the worship songs themselves. Because y- mm-hmm. you're right to note that, okay, what if it's a great worship song, and it's, it's, it's biblical, and it's like God-honoring lyrics? Okay, what about the source? So let's talk source for starts. Um, mm-hmm. In Acts chapter 20... Paul is addressing the elders at Ephesus, and and one of the things he says is, you've been appointed as overseers to shepherd the church of God. And then he says this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, like other church leaders, and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. So that's, that was Acts 20, verses 28 through 31, with a little summarizing in there. Uh, but there's this call for church leaders to shepherd and to be, to be aware that there are threats from without. There's, there are people who are perverting the gospel, who are trying to, they're, they're adding things and saying, like, yeah, believe in Jesus, but also believe in my interpretation of Genesis or my interpretation of Revelation or believe in Jesus. And go to church every Sunday or maybe you won't be saved. And, and like they're adding these things that going to church is great. And maybe your interpretation of Genesis and Revelation are true, but that's not the gospel is Jesus did it. I'm not saved mm-hmm. by having a correct interpretation of Revelation. And so people can add to the gospel. People can also use church communities just for selfish gain, trying to make money or have power and influence. And, and it is right and appropriate for church leaders to be aware of that and even take some active precaution to protect the flock. Um, that said, there is also, in the age of the internet, you can make heresy hunting a full-time job, and I would say for the most part, I do not see it bearing good fruit. In fact, I see it bearing bad fruit. There are there are websites and and podcasts and ministries whose focus is almost entirely on trying to find writers and preachers and churches and worship songs that they can find some issue with and critique and like oh this is heresy and, and they end up being really dour dour is a weird word like just like uh, just <laughs> negative and. Uh, negative and pessimistic. And I'm like, yo, I know that there are problems. There's tons of sin, but wow, look at the hope we have in Jesus. And Jesus is building his church. Like the church of God should be tremendously optimistic, not because the world is full of hope itself, but because Jesus is at work. And so like, Mm -hmm. I'm aware of their sin. I'm aware there are threats. We need to be aware and take some actions to like safeguard against wolves and bad teaching. But people who just go online, there is enough heresy in the world to make it a full-time job, and are you really helping much? You're just – what I would say – Yeah, are
1: you stewarding your time well, or are you actually right. benefiting the kingdom by
0: – Exactly. Now, okay, yeah. so let's take Bethel as a specific example. Um, I know that plenty of people do have concerns with Bethel. Uh, I, I, I've listened to, like, two sermons by Bill Johnson – I have interacted with a few people from Jesus cu- culture, like, uh, I don't know, Jen and Brian Johnson. Is that a name? Um, i trying mm-hmm. to think who's the person who sings like, Oh, how he loves us. I forget what her name was. Oh, I, I like met her, but didn't really talk to her long. I did have a right. good conversation with a woman named Havilah Cunnington. And actually what she shared was super biblical, super encouraging. Uh, She shared a prophetic word with me for me that was like spot on and confirming other things that had been shared with me prophetically Mm, prior to that. And she like when she that was like the start of our interaction. She didn't know who I was from Adam. And she was just like totally speaking by the Holy Spirit. It was was really encouraging. God used her profoundly in my life. And uh, profoundly might be an overstatement. Significantly, <laughs> mm-hmm, there you and uh, go. <laughs> and and so there are people out there who love Jesus who are being used by God. I have listened to a couple of sermons. There was nothing like heretical in them. Some things where I was like, I wouldn't say it that way, or I might disagree with this. Uh, but what I'm not interested in doing is listening to a hundred Bill Johnson sermons to find that one time when he said something that's not biblical. I'm like totally, yeah. Now, if somebody sends me a sermon where he is telling people that they're not sinners or that they're not saved through Jesus alone or something like that. I'm like, okay, probably we should give some public warnings because at this point we have done a lot of Bethel worship and people could feel almost directed that way by us. Um, if it's that straight up and like heretical, maybe we'd even stop using their songs. But right now I'm like, okay, it's a ministry that does some things differently than me. Uh, for example, they use the TPT translation uh, the Passion Translation, which I am very <laughs> uh, uh, not a fan of from the study I have done regarding that translation. I would highly recommend you not use it for Bible study or personal devotions. And But nevertheless, it's not like somebody who happens to use that is now all of a sudden a bad person. And if they write a worship course right. that's honoring Jesus and and encouraging people to love the Lord and worship him, Amen. I, I don't know mm-hmm. if that kind of like what's your thought on that? Have you without naming names, have you ever encountered that heresy hunter personality?
1: For sure, yes. And I've even I've watched documentaries that kind of are, are similar. Um but it's like, okay, you're kind of preaching to the choir because everybody who watches this just agrees, you know? And so I don't I don't right. think it did much good per se to the people who um are a little lost. But yeah, I do know people like that. Um, And it's like, they're spending all of their free time, like looking into all these churches that are like, possibly across the country. And, and I'm like, you could be, you know, pouring into your own local church and your uh, peers and community with all that time. So
0: to jump straight on that point, 100%, like, the only people I'm aware of, who have remotely been have even been influenced by like by bethel to be aware of the the tpt the the passion translation the only ones are people who are like uh looking for problems with bethel i I don't know anybody who's like reading tpt because they're like oh this is what bethel uses Uh, like it's Mm -hmm. i'm not aware of that i'm sure there are some people like that but it's it's mostly people who are like looking for problems with Bethel that might find anything. And I'm like, if you have to look to find them, then I'm not too worried about them. I'd be worried mm-hmm. if people who aren't looking for problems are encountering problems and being affected by it. Uh, totally. That, that's kind of crass or, or loose, but now let's talk about the songs themselves, because I think songs are really important. And, and when we're thinking about worship songs, I think a great place to, to start with considering the songs is uh, the Psalms in scripture. Do you have like any Psalms that are like a favorite or, or come to mind when you think about corporate worship?
1: Um, I do know that growing up, my mom would sing a lot of songs to me at night and most of them were Psalms. Um, like I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Yes. Um, I think it's a Psalm, maybe not. Um, I,
0: it's certainly related to a Psalm if it's not actually straight from a Psalm.
1: Yeah. But I, yeah, I do. I love, and you know, sing to one another in Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So
0: yeah. Okay. That's great. So you just went to Ephesians chapter five and Ephesians five. I can't quote it. So I'm going to pull it up real quick. Ephesians five says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation in the NKJV, but the CSB says, which is reckless living. But be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear. Okay, so, so take note in that passage in Ephesians, Paul talks about two sets of relationships. I'm going to read it again. What are the two sets of relationships? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. What are the two sets?
1: Us to God and us to one another.
0: Boom, boom, boom. And uh, so there is a component of, of corporate worship that is like us talking to God. And I love like making that the primary emphasis. When I think Psalms for that, I think, you know, Psalm 100, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. It's just like talking about who God is and his, his, the fact he's worthy to be praised. Uh, Psalm 150, hallelujah, which means praise God, praise God in a sanctuary, praise him in his mighty expanse, praise him for his powerful acts, praise him for his, his abundant greatness. Um, there's super God-centric um, and then also you see these Psalms that are, that are they use a, a plural we, our, us. Uh, I think of Psalm 90. Let me pull that up real quick. Um, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. So he's talking about God, then it's like our refuge. So it's, it's a plural our. In Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. And let's is obviously a let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. There's the plural. There's the us. There's the our. Now, there are Psalms that are first-person singular. Um, I think of Psalm 3. And, and actually, I know a great worship song that can be used for corporate worship based on this. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. And the psalm continues. But you see that there are psalms that are like very much pretty much just focused on God. There are psalms that are, again, talking about God, but include the plural us, our, we. I should have said that in the reverse order, we, our, us. (laughs) Uh, And then there are psalms that very much do use first person singular, and that can be appropriate. Um, For corporate worship, I like to kind of like focus on the ones that are focused on God use the plurals and then occasionally maybe have some first person singulars uh, because the worship described in Ephesians five, isn't really just a me or just a me and God. It's a God and an us. Mm-hmm. So for example, definitely a weakness in contemporary Christian worship music at times. I think there are a lot of strengths. There are tons of great worship courses today. Like, Tons, tons, tons. I love it. We we live in a uh just a really blessed season in terms of lots of options for great worship. Cause you can reach back and grab some classic hymns with just like really rich lyrical content that's endured the test of time. Like w- what are some of your favorite hymns? I don't know. I love Be Thou My Vision.
1: mm mm-hmm. I love that song. Which is a first person um,
0: singular, but you know, it's still good. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I love Come Thou Found.
0: Oh yes. Um,
1: I love Amazing Grace is a classic song, but Mm. not one of my
0: favorites. It Um, is a classic. Uh, um, I I also love, man, I'm blanking on psalms now. Come Thou Founts Good.
1: I know, I'm blanking too.
0: Be Thou My Vision. Mm. Do you know what? I actually have a list of psalms I keep on my phone and I pull it up once in a while. Just to check out, er, hymns, Sorry. Um, Hymn list Let's see Blessed assurance Crown him with many crowns Great is thy faithfulness How great thou Mm -hmm. art It is well with my soul Um, Oh for a thousand tongues to sing and I'm only reading like the highlights, but like I have a list of, of hymns yeah. I enjoy. So there are some greats from then, but there are also a bunch of great worship songs written like this year. Uh, up here at, at my local church, we sing some songs that were written by people in the church over the past 30 years. We sing from, songs from All Sons and Daughters and, and Hillsong and Elevation Worship and Bethel. And I don't even know where most of them are from. Just like great songs. But there are enough that are I, my, me, that mm. you can very easily, if you're not being careful, fashion a, worship, a, a set of songs for corporate worship that's primarily to be about God and then to one another. And it can almost have this sense where the focal point is me. And it's like, Ugh. hey, you know, it's not necessarily a bad song, but is it a great set of songs for corporate worship? And there's this one bridge uh, for a song. It's actually a like a, a great song. What's the song? Um, it's called Only You. I know that David Crowder band plays it. I don't know if they wrote it. But there's this one part in the bridge where it's like, it's just you and me here now. Only you and me here now. It's just like super, what it was, was probably mm. somebody with a guitar or a piano just worshiping Jesus and it was them by themselves. And so they wrote a song about that. But then people use it in corporate worship and it's really weird to be standing in the middle of a group of people where you're singing to God and singing to one another. And you have this one section where it's like, it's just you and me here now. I'm like, but, but, it, mm. but it's not. <laughs> it's, it's a group of us here. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes like worship sets can become, again, there's nothing wrong with using a first person singular. It's used in the Psalms. Occasionally, I'll meet somebody who's like, oh, this is so like unbiblical. And I'm like, actually, have you read your Bible? <laughs> it's totally <laughs> biblical, that first person singular. But when that's the emphasis, uh.
1: um, mm-hmm.
0: there are some other things to consider. And for example, the word love today has a very warm, fuzzy, and sin-permitting niceness mm, in our culture. Yeah. Like, can you think of a context where Love might be used to, to mm, maybe not justify sin, but tolerate it.
1: Mm, well, love is love. I think that's a very like a term used nowadays to be like all inclusive, accepting of everybody, no matter what they lifestyle they live.
0: Right. Um, like if you're like, mm, that's not God's design. That's sinful. Somebody's like, well, that's not very loving to say.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm like, I'm gonna let the Bible define love. Because God is love. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that love rejoices in the truth. And affirming sin as a good thing is not true. It's not loving. It's nice. And I actually have this like, I realize nice and kind are like synonyms, but I differentiate them and I say, God is not nice. The word nice is never used in the Bible in any translation (laughs) Mm -hmm. I read. God is not nice because there are tons of people who are nice and they are nice in such a way that they're no longer loving because they right. they don't say things when they should say things. You know, a nice parent allows their kids to plan the road and get killed. But a kind parent says no and will like discipline them if they're out of control. Right? Like that's the difference between kind and nice. And God is kind, he is good, he is loving, he's not nice. He does not tolerate sin. He doesn't permit us to do things that are just unhealthy for us and the people around us. God is not nice. And as a result, sometimes even in worship songs where it uses the word love in a perfectly fine way, it's like totally 100% percent a okay, but it can still like, I'm like, is there a way to make this like really obvious what it means? And for example, there's this great chorus called, uh, what is it called? Build My Life. And the Mm -hmm. bridge of the song says, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. I will not be shaken. And in 1 John, it says that God is love. And this this bridge is perfectly, 100% biblical and good. However, in the context of our culture and our misunderstanding of love, sometimes what I prefer to sing is, I will build my life upon your word. Because it emphasizes, you know what loving is? It's, it's building our lives on the truth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that, right? In Luke chapter ooh, six or seven, he says, whoever hears my words and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That I want to build my life on the word of Jesus. So the song As Is is perfectly fine, but I prefer it in this cultural moment to be rendered, I will build my life upon your word. And I think one of the other pastors at the, the church where I serve made that change and I was a big fan. Um, another song that like we tweaked—it's fine as is—but tweaked it in light of a current cultural moment—is uh, a song called "Christ Be Magnified." It's like a beautiful song, awesome bridge, just talking about standing strong and what God has for us, and rejoicing even in the midst of difficulty and tribulation. And and there's this line—it says because death is just a doorway into resurrection life and if i join you in your suffering then i'll join you when you rise and i would say as is totally fine it's not wrong it's not unbiblical but i don't love it and the reason why is this we live in this current this cultural moment where there are lots of christians in the united states but even more people who have a f- fuzzy idea of Christianity. They're not really following Jesus. And what they do is they use Christian ad- adjacent or similar ideas as platitudinal relief and comfort in moments of difficulty. And what I mean by platitudinal is like a platitude, like, oh, it's all going to work out in the end. Or, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's God's will. Or, you know, they're, they're in heaven mm-hmm. now. They're smiling they're in down on place. us. Just these sayings yeah. to bring comfort. <laughs> And I'm like, well, it all works out in the end for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's finish the verse there. Mm-hmm. Let's not just use this. I, that's, that's really Jason
1: funny ahead. you said that because I someone said that the other day, just the first half of the verse. And I was like, actually, you're missing a really important part.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, 100%. And, and so like, I want to emphasize this, this clarity. And when it comes to death, there is death is horrible. Death is an enemy. It's a result of sin. Jesus came to defeat death because death is like the ultimate and final enemy. And and to to help us when we're mourning, sometimes we try to minimize or or belittle death like ah they're in a better place now and you almost ignore the death part. And I'm like they died and death is an enemy and what I want to do is I actually want to make much about Jesus's victory over death by recognizing death is an enemy. It's not just a doorway. I realize Just the Doorway is poetic, and I'm 100% okay with poetry, which is why I said this song is fine as is. But I tweaked the lyric from, because death is just the doorway into resurrection life, to because death has been defeated, we have resurrection life. And it literally means the same thing, but it emphasizes the fact that, yeah, death's an enemy, but Jesus defeated this thing, and we have resurrection life. It, it doesn't uh, bring hope by minimizing death. It brings hope mm. by... N- emphasizing the victory we have in Jesus, the fact that he's defeated sin and death. And, and so like, that was just a little tweak given the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. But I'm a big fan of letting songs be poetic and I'm, I'm, I try not to be nitpicky. Are there any like worship songs that you've had questions about at times or have had similar thoughts? And like, I don't know, what, what's your experience with contemporary worship choruses? Mm.
1: Man, I know I've I've thought that before not necessarily in my church, but I think I've been to like big youth events and they're they're playing these songs um really vague. Um I, songs don't have to mention Jesus or God, but I think when they don't, we can kind of start getting into this limbo land of like I'm I just it seems indirect. Um and so yeah, but I, I've never really, I don't think I've heard a song where I'm like, that's strictly going against the scripture. Um, at least a song that's like overtly a worship song. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So w- one of the thoughts, I think I got this from my dad. I can't recall for sure, but it was like, well, generally I try not to be super picky, but at the same time, there are so many great songs. We can be a little bit picky. Maybe mm-hmm. like, ah, that song's not bad. But there are better ones. Um, just mm-hmm. recently, actually. So it's, it's the season of Advent, um, you know, Christmas, December 25th, in a lot of churches around the US and probably around the world. They're very, in, in a fairly direct and specific way, thinking about Jesus' coming, the fact that he came to save his people from their sins, and singing great Christmas carols. I don't know how familiar you are with some of the classics. A couple of my favorite Christmas carols are Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, mm-hmm. and O Come O Come Emmanuel. No, that and, like that too. song is just like so full of biblical references. Mm-hmm. It's like mind blowing. I preached a whole sermon based on the biblical texts under that song. And uh, it, it's some really rich stuff. And there was a song uh, just, just the other day. I was talking with some believers about a song, a, a classic Christmas song. And it kind of tells like the Christmas story. It's fine. It talks about shepherds coming to worship and it talks about angels singing. And I was like, you know, it's, it's a nice song. It's fine. But like, I kind of prefer songs where we're singing to Jesus and like worshiping him and proclaiming like slightly more profound truths about like who God is. I was like, it's a fine song, but let's exhaust all the better ones first. You know, if, mm-hmm. if we work through all the other songs and we're kind of like, we need another song about Jesus and like him coming, I'm like, well, we'll rock that one. But there are so many totally. better ones. And so let's mm-hmm. let's exhaust the other ones first. I think that's how it often is with, with contemporary worship choruses it's kind of like, uh, there's just a lot of me in that, there's not very much clear mm-hmm. God in that, maybe it's an okay song, but there are better ones.
1: Totally, yeah.
0: Uh, so, hey, I wanted to cut chat about one more thing before we split, and that was to mm-hmm. briefly follow up our conversation from like over a month ago now, maybe about a month ago. Oh. We talked, and you asked a question about church membership and a question mm-hmm. about, uh, like women preaching and in church leadership. And I, I gave you like a 90 minute answer because <laughs> it's a massive <laughs> question about women in ministry. And I realized I probably omitted a ton of stuff. Uh, you could probably do like a whole like, you know, books worth of content, hours and hours totally. of content answering that question well. But I kind of left out two things. One that I like to include when I'm talking uh, talking about that topic and another one that was kind of part of what you were asking and I never really answered. (laughs) So the first one is this. I think it's important and maybe not so much for like you and me, but recognizing that we have, you know, there are are dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people listening to this and they're going to come from a lot of different backgrounds and perspectives. And I like to mention just the fact that and I can't. Maybe I did mention this, but I haven't like listened to the whole conversation back. It's wicked long. But I think one of the things important to recognize is part of why this topic is challenging and controversial and dif- difficult is, in my opinion, not because the Bible passages are that confusing. I think they're pretty clear. That's my take. But because there's a lot of like sin and baggage around questions regarding gender. Possibly the most consistent, widespread, systematic sin is men using, abusing, and oppressing women. And so there's just there's tons of sin uh, with men belittling, using, abusing, etc. And and so as a result, you have facets almost like a bit of a backlash of. Uh, you know, it's weird. I was interacting with some uh, non-believing friends recently, some, some women, and like, man, some of the stuff they said, it's almost like they hate men. I'm like, well, they've probably been hurt by some men. And mm-hmm. they were talking very comfortably around me. and I was like, okay, should I not be here? <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it was just like really strong. And I was like, you know what? I, I think their perspective on men is not biblical. Men should be, should be, we should be thankful that God made men and, and celebrate men, but we should also be thankful God made women and celebrate women. And I think sometimes the human, in the midst of human brokenness, we can end up like really reacting and, and behaving sinfully towards members of the opposite sex, or even just sinfully towards God designed for gender. And, and so kind of recognizing the emotional basis although it's maybe bad emotions that lead to why this is so controversial, there are, there is real sin, often by men against women, that make this complicated and controversial. So that's oh, one yeah. thought. Do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on that before I get to the other one?
1: Well, do you think that that's like a, uh, a newer thing, something that's re-emerged in our culture, maybe? Or this has been around for forever?
0: Sin by men against women?
1: Yeah, well, I-, I would say kind of... I feel like right now, at least, there's a lot of like feminism or like just all this like fem- f- pro female stuff, um, and I I just the think future it's like is a struggle. Yeah, I think it's a struggle for our culture right now to just be like just have a I don't know like a realistic understanding of of gender and um. So yeah, I think that can kind of play into just everything we're talking about, but like, I know it's not, I know it's not a new idea. Um, obviously like all sin has been around for forever, but do you think, do you know why maybe this is just such a struggle for our culture right now?
0: Good question. Hmm. You caught me off guard. Okay. Let, let's <laughs> so, so clearly sin men sitting against women, and like at, at a very like systemic cultural level is not at all new I'm even thinking of, can you remember like the the story with Lot, and the angels visit him in Sodom, and they want to rape the angels, and Lot's like, "Hey, here are my virgin daughters, rape them and like you're just like, what the and and literally <laughs> although Lot was even kind of held up as a righteous man, he he clearly did not understand his role to to provide for and protect his daughters, but was valuing these men who are visiting him over them. And, and you see something very similar actually in Judges chapter 19, where the host ends up actually giving one of his 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 wives, ooh, I can't remember if it's a wife or a daughter, and then the the concubine of his guest to the men of the city mm-hmm. and they rape them and, and the concubines actually raped to death. She like stumbles back to the, the house the next morning and dies. And it's really gross and and sad. Y- you see stories like Tamar with Judah. So Tamar had a husband. I don't recall his name. She was uh, Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Israel, Jacob. Mm-hmm. And he had a son, two sons. I don't remember the name of the older son, but he, the older son was married and died. And so what was culturally recognized and like fine was uh his brother onan would fulfill the obligation of like hey my brother died without an heir to kind of carry on continue running his estate so the brother will have sex with his sister-in-law and that child would be recognized as like the 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 descendant of the deceased brother so onan had sex with tamar and are are you familiar with the story so it's in Genesis not. 38. So, no, so like Onan that. actually, he he's, he has sex with Tamar and then he pulls out uh, and like ejaculates on the ground rather mm-hmm. than... Uh,
1: I think I have read
0: this, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird story. <laughs> it's a very weird story. Sorry. But I'm going to the weird ones on purpose. So he, he basically, he has sex with her. He uses her for... And what you realize is he's using her for his own gratification, not to serve her and to serve his deceased brother because he has sex Mm -hmm. with her, but then he, he actually, he pulls out to purposely not procreate with her. Mm -hmm. And so you realize, Oh, he just used her and kind of abused her rather than served her. And, and, and so Onan does that. And then now she's still childless. So what she ends up doing is she dresses up, disguises herself as a prostitute and has like a, a, a veil on and she actually, she goes, she, and really weird, she ends up getting her father-in-law, Judah, one of Jacob's sons. Judah, this is like King David as a descendant of Tamar. Mm-hmm. Jesus, it's actually in Jesus' lineage. Pop up uh, Gen- or Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Mm-hmm. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The thing is, Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. She dresses up as a prostitute. She gets Judah to come to bed with her. He impregnates her in the process. He didn't have money to pay her right then, so she kept his staff and signet ring. And later on, he like sent payment. Oh wait, he tried to send payment to her, but she wasn't there anymore. And uh, a few months later. It's discovered she's pregnant, but she's a widow. Like, how? why is she pregnant? Like, this isn't Onan's child. Like, who has she been with? And so Judah's response, this is in Genesis 38. Let me pull it up so I'm not, like, misremembering. Uh, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. So Judah is going to burn his daughter-in-law to death for having promiscuous sex. Guess who's the one who had promiscuous sex with her? Judah. Um. <laughs> it's, like, it's the same sin he was engaged in. Verse 25, mm-hmm. as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I since I did not give her to my son, Shayla, and he did not know her intimately again. So Judah had given her to Onan, Onan pulled out, and Shayla was a younger brother, who I think was prepubescent at the time. So she waited years for him to hit puberty, but Judah still didn't have, Shayla have sex with his, at that point, much older sister-in-law, whatever. It's a weird story. (laughs) But my point is this, you see, even way back then, this is like Abraham is Isaac, Jacob, Judah, so it's like that time, and mm-hmm. Judah ends up, he's about to burn her to death for having sex outside of the appropriate moral guidance. But he's the one who had that sex with her, and then he's like, oh, he never actually like repents for having sex with her. he just repents for realizing like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of wronged her but mm-hmm. and, and you, but you see what you're seeing here is, man, th- there was. And in, in even in that culture, these were men that God used, but wow, they had a sinful and, and ungodly view of women. Um, the, the kind of double standard, the, the devaluing, it's really sad. And so that's not new at all. One of the things that you see out of the curse, though. So if you go back to Genesis chapter three, is that in addition to we, we see this kind of sin by men against women, in addition to that, we see that the, the woman. He said this, Genesis 3.16, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And that phrasing, it's, it's a little tricky, but that phrasing, your desire will be for your husband. Well, hey, it's a podcast. Let's take a minute and, and uh, belabor this.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So your desire will be for your husband. Look at Genesis chapter 4. So Cain murders Abel. You're probably familiar with that story. Mm -hmm. Cain murders Abel, and this is what God says to him. Genesis 4, 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. (laughs) It's that exact same phrasing, right? Mm -hmm. So in the case of Cain, God says, Sin will desire you and you will, must rule over it. In the curse to Eve, the woman, he said, you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. It's the exact same parallel idea. And what he realizes, oh, in the midst of the, there's this sin by men against women, but there is this sinful reaction where women want to somehow usurp and dominate and take control. It's not simply a, hey, let's have a biblical, godly, valuing for male and female instead it's a the future is female and i hate men and we don't need men and like and you're like (laughs) so in terms of an organized movement it seems relatively modern but in terms of a sinful heart impulse it seems like it goes back to day one of the curse
1: yeah
0: Unfortunately, I can't answer your question better than that.
1: (laughs) No, that's great. That Uh, makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would add a quick thought. While feminism in its modern form, in my opinion, I shouldn't just say in my opinion, certain elements of it, elements such as, you know, men are evil or less valuable, things like that, obviously very extreme positions. Most feminists wouldn't say that, but those are clearly unbiblical. Uh, But even a, a, a more common feminist idea, which essentially tries to say men and women are the same? That's not biblical. Biblically clearly there's a there's a difference and we should be thankful for and celebrate that. But uh there is there are like again pushing against the the tendency by men to dominate and use and abuse and oppress women. That is Jesus like Jesus honored women and allowed women to serve him and and valued them and and uh women are highly regarded in scripture because women are amazing. God created women and loves women and they have are called to be active in the working of God, just as men are Um, not necessarily in all the exact same ways, but active and engaged in the ministry that God's called all of us to. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: So the the second thing that I wanted to add was, you noted specifically that you've heard some people talk about the cultural things happening in like Corinth or Ephesus where I don't remember exactly what you said, but when you asked the question, you said something like, I heard pastors talk about this women stay silent because of some cultural stuff. Do you remember that? And what have you heard about the cultural stuff? Or maybe you don't remember specifically.
1: I don't really remember what I meant by that.
0: Okay. So, so people do have said that. And I, I don't think I addressed it well in our first conversation I've heard explanations. So in both of these cities, they were Greek-influenced cities. One's actually in Greece, Corinth. The other one is in what's now Turkey. So it would be Asia Minor, but it's a Greek city. It's right on the coast across. Is that the Aegean Sea? I believe it's the Aegean. Um, It's a Greek city, and and they they worshipped gods, and there were temples, and there were temple prostitutes. And we talked about that in the shaved heads when we were talking about 1 Corinthians 11. But also... In these contexts, often women had very prominent roles in the pagan worship. And I have heard some commentators wonder if the women, when they got saved, they were like new converts, but because what they're familiar with was like women uh, leading the pagan worship, they wanted to take over and lead the Christian worship. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yo, you, you just got saved. You're like a baby Christian with a pagan background. Like, stay silent, learn.
1: Totally. Yeah. Now, okay, now I remember yeah, I've heard a lot about how women in that church were just, like, speaking out a lot in the church, or, like, it was random, uncontrolled, kind of chaotic. What they were saying was not biblical. Um, and so, exactly to just, and like, learn so, first, kind of.
0: So, here's the reason that, in my opinion, is not particularly persuasive. Certainly, I think it's important to be aware of the context, especially when looking at the head-covering passage in 1 Corinthians 11, and we discussed that uh, about a month ago. But the reason that's not particularly persuasive is twofold. Firstly, I'm sure there were men who were also baby Christians and had personalities. You know, have you ever been in a small group where there's just like a talker and they like dominate and you're kind of like, um, mm-hmm. y- y- you want like the ideal small group has several people who are very talkative and engaged, but also know how to give space. Unlike me, I apologize. I just keep talking and talking. <laughs> JK, <laughs> uh, if you have a thought, please share. But the, it, it's not uniquely a women-female problem. Maybe there were a bunch of women like that, but if it was the people like that, he should have said, hey, the like baby Christians who don't know what they're talking about, who are trying to dominate, they should stay quiet. But instead he said, let the women be silent. So, and not only did he just address women, but his basis isn't let the women stay silent because they're chatting a lot or wrong about a lot of things. It's let them stay silent for Adam was created first mm. It's like well, there, there's a grounding that transcends the Corinthian culture or the Ephesian culture. And so for those two reasons, while I think it is important to, to understand the cultural context, it, it turns out that it doesn't exp, it, it doesn't well... Mm, it doesn't seem to well explain paul's writing in first corinthians 14 and in first timothy 2 to simply say oh it was some recent pagan converts who are women who are like really talkative and disruptive Mm -hmm. Uh, because otherwise he would have said the really talkative disruptive women should be quiet
1: (laughs) totally yeah (laughs) and he would have said
0: because they don't know what they're talking about and they're just uh, obnoxious but instead he Mm -hmm. says women and then says because adam was created first as it's as the law says uh, yeah. So, co beans. hopefully that brought some clarity there, although maybe you weren't even thinking about it anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's awesome.
0: You are welcome. Hey, it's okay, fun wait, chatting. Before
1: we finish, oh, I have one question? Yeah. The passion, why don't you like it?
0: Mm. Okay, so I've the never passion i any of it. Just a second.
1: And if you need to go, that's totally fine. We can no, no, this later. I, I
0: totally have time. So, one sixteen, sweet. So the Passion Translation. So I am not prepared off the top of my head to give a good explanation for why I don't like the Passion Translation because it is. there are two, two, two reasons why. Three. One, the Passion Translation is translated by a single guy, kind of like the, the Message Bible is translated by Eugene Peterson. The difference is that the Message Bible, like Eugene Peterson... D- wouldn't want you to study it like uh, like for scholarship. He'd be like, Hey, I, this is a, a labor of love to encourage people, maybe be used devotionally, but this is not a rigorous Bible translation. Don't use this for serious study or theological work. Don't preach out of this as your primary text. Like mm-hmm. th- he, he knows what it is. Whereas the passion Pro- the Bible, the passion translation, excuse me, is it was translated by one guy. But he's like, "Oh, this is a this is a serious translation for real study, Bible study." And so that's like immediately I'm kind of like, "Uh, eh, you think really highly of yourself." But that just makes me a little uncomfortable because part of what's amazing about the Bible translations we have like the ESV, NIV, CSB, they're done by like teams of of scholars who love Jesus, bring a bunch of like experience, bring a bunch of perspectives, and they literally work together as like a team. They're like every word. They're like, how should we translate this? And and they maybe it's not your favorite, but it's really good. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's one guy, it's like, well, what if he didn't really know very much about this one word and translated it? Early? Yeah. Like that's just very sure. not great for serious study. Just mm-hmm. the first one is if everything else, if it was a fine translation and everything else was good, I'd be like, eh, that makes me a lot uncomfortable to consider it a serious Bible for study. And that's mm-hmm. how he builds it. But secondly, his He's very charismatic, which I'm very charismatic. Uh, I believe Mm -hmm. that God speaks today. The Holy Spirit is at work. I believe in visions and dreams and prophecy. I also am aware that we see in part and we know in part. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, it literally, Paul explicitly says we prophesy in part. And and so I am very open and I seek after the prophetic, but I'm also... uh, like, okay, let, let's see confirmation and let's, let, let's seek God and let's keep things rooted in scripture. And he, his story, you can actually find it online. He shared the testimony many times. He feels like God came to him in like a, I don't know if it was a dream or a vision, but the Lord spoke and like called him to do this translation and said, I'm going to like give you the ability to translate it. And I'm going to even like unlock new things and p- things that people have never understood. I'm going to like help you understand. I'm like, wait a second. I, th- for, for Bible translation, you don't need to like understand new ideas. You just need to translate this well. If you're preaching it, maybe mm-hmm. you be like, oh, wow. Like, think about it this way. But you're not preaching yeah. the Bible. You're translating it. Just translate it well. Um, mm-hmm. So that is very unnerving. And in fact, when you listen to him talk, it, it almost makes me think of like Joseph Smith or, or the prophet mm-hmm. Muhammad. And like they mm-hmm. have angels come to them and give them revelation. And it's just like it's, it's very uncomfortable. And I'm like, oof. If you were just by yourself working hard, I'd be like, oh, I'm still hesitant to use this as a Bible for serious study. But when, when it's accompanied by claims to like special understanding for your translation that no one else has, that's just sketch. Mm-hmm. But thirdly, when I, and I've read papers by scholars who've, who've looked at various books of the Bible that he's translated, and they've critiqued, and they've been like, not only was it just one dude but yeah he, he didn't do a good job he like added in phrases that weren't in the bible and he doesn't put them in italics I don't, does the ESV Interesting. do that um, words that
1: weren't originally in the bible
0: yeah so um, so for example I
1: don't
0: know I'm trying to see if the ESV does this I'm not positive if it does in, in the New King James version for sure and I, I think-, think
1: it does wait one of the is it, like, John 3? No. Isn't there a book or a chapter, Mark? Matthew, maybe? Mark 16. Yes. I think that might be in italics. Is that the part that was, like, added or, like, debatable? So,
0: that one's not in italics. It'll be in square brackets in the oh. ESV. Um, but what there often are will be words, like, I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if the ESV does this, but sometimes mm-hmm. what translations will do is they add in the helping words that aren't actually directly from the Greek, but it's kind of needed for the English to make sense. And they'll just mm-hmm. put them in italics. And that I know mm-hmm. for a fact is what TPT does. But the problem was he was adding words that weren't in the Greek and he wasn't putting them in italics. And so mm-hmm. either it was really sloppy, which is a concern of one person doing a translation, or he was like purposefully misleading. And again, a concern uh, either way. So if you look in Mark 16 and the ESV, it'll probably have square brackets that end after verse 19, but actually begin at the end of chapter 15, maybe. Do you see those or no? I closed
1: my Bible. Wait. Oh, um, you closed
0: we're in, Bible. Yeah. Oh, wait. Uh, it um, actually it starts uh, at verse 9. Verses 9 to 19 or 20 is in we'll be in like square brackets. So, briefly, let's talk about TP, finished TPT, and then we can move okay. on to texts, manuscripts for the Bible. Yes. So, TPT, the first concern is it's billed as a Bible for serious study, but it's translated by one person, which is just a big red flag. Secondly, not only is it one person, but it claims to have like extra understanding from the Holy Spirit for translating, which like I would hope that Bible translators are praying and asking God to give them wisdom. But the claim is made in such a way that it almost sounds like this translation contains things others don't. And it's, it's not just that it's a good translation that he's claiming for it to be, although even that I think is false, but it's like divinely inspired translation, which is really disconcerting and then thirdly yeah there there have been plenty of critiques that are like yeah this he's he's adding stuff without being clear about it and it's just it's not well translated so he's claiming that it is a good translation by one person which is a red flag and then when scholars look at it it's not a good translation and he's he's claiming that it's like inspired oh related to his process he claims Mm -hmm. that he like uses the original aramaic for new testament texts Mm-hmm. The New Testament was written in Greek. There aren't original Aramaic texts. Oh, it's it's just like really there are a number of concerning things about it. Again, I'm not mm-hmm. prepared to give you like a walkthrough. Yeah, but, no, but... but I'm I have major concerns about TBT. Yeah. Now you uh-huh. referenced in that conversation, you referenced <laughs> some passages in the New Testament what, that we're not sure what was in the original Bible. Like And when I say original mm-hmm. Bible, I mean like Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. How did he end his gospel? If you look in chapter 16, most modern translations, certainly the ESV, the CSB does the same thing. will square bracket off verses 9 through 20. And it's... Yes, mine are. Scholars aren't sure. Some early Greek copies have verses 9 through 20 and some don't. And they're like, wait, was it added in by a scribe later? Was it original and just lost on some of the early mm-hmm. copies? We're not sure. Let me show you another section. Go to John 8. Um, this is the one that actually starts at the end of 7. So turn to John seven 53. I'm about to like...
1: Oh, I'll, I'll explain I've never a little realized bit, this that. Could be,
0: this could be disappointing at first. So did you see 53 is in square brackets Mm -hmm. and it goes through chapter eight, verse 11. And this is a very famous anecdote. Um, There's a woman uh, allegedly caught in adultery and Jesus allegedly has this encounter with her. And I say allegedly because I suspect this is apocryphal, meaning it it could be true, Mm -hmm. but I, I doubt it was in the gospel of John that John wrote. I suspect it was added in, um, but I don't know. It, it sounds like, I think everything done in it is biblical. It's not like, uh, ooh, ooh, that's an important thing. Pause for a second. Mm-hmm. So before I like accidentally ah. undermine, everybody's like scared that they don't know that's in the Bible. What's amazing about the new Testament is we have thousands and thousands of copies, thousands of copies in Latin, thousands, and thousands of copies in Greek and some of them are very old we have like sections of books of the bible from just a, a few centuries after the bible was written and what's amazing with all the copies we have is there is some variation they're all handmade copies right and so there's variation occasionally scribes will spell words differently or uh, you know maybe you omit a word leave a word out or like there's even like part of a verse that's like a different phrase and you're like hmm what was this or in the case of mark 16 in the case of john 8 in the case of first John five, seven, uh, I, those are three that I, I can come up with off the top of my head. There's like whole sections where you're like, was this even in the, the original? We don't know, but here's, what's really important to realize starting out for almost like for 99% of the new Testament, all the variations actually confirm. Wow. With thousands of copies, like this is, we know exactly what they wrote in the originals for like 99 plus percent of the new Testament. It's, Whereas if we just had one set of copies that all perfectly agreed, it'd be like, possibly original, but what if actually mm-hmm. it was changed and we just have the change? Like, how would we even know? What's amazing about the fact that we have lots of families of, where it was copied in like Asia Minor, copied in like Egypt, copied in Rome. We have all these families of copies and we have the ability to go back and be like, with remarkable accuracy, say, we know pretty much for most of the New Testament Basically, exactly what John wrote, what Mark wrote, etc.
1: Mm-hmm. That
0: said, there are a few places where we're not certain, and fortunately, none of them impacts like New Testament, like any sort of biblical theology. For example, yeah. the end of Mark True. sixteen includes the Great Commission. What if that wasn't actually originally in Mark's gospel? Well, we have the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight too. Like Mm -hmm. Jesus commissioned us and whether or not Mark originally included it in his gospel or somebody added it on later, it's, it's the Bible. So if you look at Mark 16, let me go there real quick. Uh, Mark 16. Yeah. It's later on. He says go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned. And we might say like, Hmm, did Mark really include that initially? I'm not certain. But I know this. He's basically reiterating what Jesus said in John 3. He's reiterating Mm -hmm. what Jesus said in Matthew 28. So it's perfectly biblical. It doesn't change any theology. The same is true in John 8. It's it's a powerful anecdote where Jesus, you know, writes on the ground, then says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. I don't know if it was actually originally in John's Gospel. I'm not even certain if it wasn't. Is it even a made up story? Did it really happen? It's possible it wasn't in John's Gospel, but it's true. Um, mm-hmm. It's also possible. It, it's not true. The thing is this: no theology is based on John eight. It's it's a powerful mm-hmm. anecdote, but it's not Jesus saying sin's not a big deal. It's Jesus offering pardon and Jesus making a comment about our own sin, which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew seven when he says, "You know, don't take the plank out of your speck out of your brother's eye before you deal with the plank in your own eye." So, like, this is just perfectly Jesus like teaching whether it was original in John or not is not certain. Yeah. Um, so we'll move to first John five, seven. That's the last one we'll look at. Oops. Oops. I typed in the wrong thing. First John five, seven. So look up first John five, seven in the ESV.
1: Okay. Are you there? Yeah.
0: What does five, seven say?
1: For there are three that testify. That's half. And then...
0: Here's, here's what First John 5, 7 says in the New King James Version. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. It's like mm. three times longer. <laughs> wow. Hm. Um, which one's original? I suspect what the ESV has is the original. Hm. In fact, the editors of your translation are so confident they didn't even include the rest with square brackets. It might be in a footnote though. Do you have footnotes in that Bible?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm online right now in my Bible. I do. So it's probably under. Yeah. Let's see.
0: So a Bible with footnotes, a modern Bible with footnotes will have that verse will be like five words, but then it'll have a footnote that includes that. Some late manuscripts include that testify in heaven the Father the Word and the Holy Spirit and these three are one. It
1: doesn't have. I have footnotes, but not. It doesn't, doesn't have a footnote. It.
0: Well, the, the CSB does. Um, but anywho, it, it's a it's one of those texts where the manuscripts some of them have it and some of them don't, and so mm-hmm. it's. But again, let's just say that the original didn't include. Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Those that's still true. It's not like we lost something by right. losing that. It's it's made clear in other places where you know in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John one one. Like we we know that Father, Word, uh, John fourteen, and John sixteen. Jesus described himself as coming to us, but it's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, Holy Spirit, these are it's one God, and uh, so again. Although there are a few passages, it's just a few, and none of them impact Christian doctrine or theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions mm, about the Bible? Cool. That was fun.
1: Mm-mm. No, not right now, but I'm sure now, I will. Now, Soon. how did
0: you know about Mark 16? I'm curious.
1: Um, I think, I think we've talked about it in our young adults before. Not in depth at all, but someone brought it up one time. And I've noticed it in my Bible, too, how it says, like, this is not included, or some early manuscripts do not have this. Um, so, yeah.
0: Boom. Interesting. Awesome. Well, great question. Yes. Have a great day, Kate. It's thank fun you. Connecting. You too. It's great yeah, thank, chatting. Yeah. Thanks for doing a conversation redux.
1: Totally. This is fun. Redux. Yes. New vocab word of the day. <laughs>